Well, I welcomed you earlier, but I want to welcome you again to Element Church. We're excited that you're here. We always do consider it an honor uh, when you choose to be here to worship alongside of us. Uh, it really is beautiful weather this weekend. I know I said that earlier. Um, and you always appreciate the beauty of weather more after having weather that isn't quite so pretty or isn't exactly what you wanted. Actually, we weren't, uh, my family and I were not in town for the snow. We, uh, we got a call this week. We had to go out of town for an emergency fu- uh, funeral or kind of a uh, last minute funeral. I got news on Tuesday that the funeral was Friday morning in Oklahoma. And so we got in the car and drove uh, and, and just came back uh, this weekend. So we kind of missed the snow that you guys endured, but we were kind of uh, exposed to a whole different kind of extreme weather in Oklahoma. My wife and I grew up there, so it wasn't a big deal. It didn't really bother us at all. But uh, they had quite a few tornadoes while we were there. That's just a routine part of life when you live uh, in a place like Oklahoma. And, uh, and so just about 12 hours before we got there, uh, they had a big tornado that ripped up a, a pretty good chunk of, of a city there. Um, there were they up to grapefruit-sized hail. In one part, um, I read a report where one of one of the pieces of hail went straight through the roof of the storm chaser's car. Just crazy stuff. Um, and so then while we were there, we experienced a lot of rain and storms and high winds. And there were some tornadoes. They weren't close to us. But then you come here and it's just beautiful. You know, plus it's like the perfect humidity in Oklahoma. You, you feel like you need gills to breathe sometimes. But then you come here and it's so so much better. Um, but now that the weather is getting better, it's getting more beautiful, it's, it's time to start doing new things. Um, it's time to start planting your gardens. Now, I need to confess, I confessed last week that while I can do a lot of stuff around the house, I can't work on cars. It's just not something my dad taught me. It's not something I know. Um, and I appreciate all of you who kind of like made me feel good about myself after last week and were like, oh yeah, I've never done that either. I don't do this. I don't do that. Uh, so we had some great conversations. I didn't feel nearly as alone when I, I say that I can't do anything on a car. But uh, one of the other things that I cannot do is like maintain plants, uh, even if they're outdoor plants like grass. Um, uh, my Palmer lives next door. He can testify. Um, so like like two summers ago, our whole backyard was rock. It was zero escaped when we moved in and not, not great conditions for kids. So I dug up a lot of the rock and moved it and then put sod in. And the first summer, it was beautiful. It was great to play on. It was very green. And then last summer, it was not so green, but it was there. And then this summer, it's just brown. Like literally like 70% of our sod died. I don't know why, but I just don't really grow things. My yards never looked great. Uh, I tried, we tried a garden two years ago and it, we got some good cherry tomatoes. Our kids would just go out and pick them and eat them. But other than that, it was mostly weeds, right? So I'm not really the garden person. Maybe you are. Maybe you enjoy that. I love the idea of it. I just, I don't know what it is. I'm just not good at it. We don't maintain it well enough, whatever it is. And, uh, but it's that time of year where you're going to start uh, getting ready for that stuff. You're going to start getting ready uh, for planting, whether it be a new tree in your yard because the HOA is getting on you for your tree being dead. We've all been there, right? Okay, just making sure. Um, and so whatever it is, maybe it's a garden that you're going to, to plant. Um, but we all recognize a really simple principle that whatever it is that you plant is what will grow, right? 
um, you, you plant uh, some sort of tomato seeds or a small tomato uh, you know, seedling or plant, you expect that a tomato plant's going to grow. Uh, you plant a row of cucumbers or cilantro, whatever your thing is, that's what you anticipate growing. That's what you expect to be produced from what you sow, what you plant. Um, you know, the Bible loves to use that language of sowing and reaping, of planting and harvesting. And Jesus, in a lot of his teachings, utilized that kind of imagery to help teach spiritual lessons to the people uh, that were there following him, that they were, were there listening to him. Uh, and so as we kind of wrap up our series on heart matters that we've been spending a couple weeks on, where we've just really looked at what is it that the Bible has to say about our hearts and why is it so important? As we kind of summarize today, uh, towards the end of our, my message today, we'll kind of summarize uh, our series together and why it's so important and why it matters. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 6. If, if you brought a Bible, great. If you want to use one of ours that's in the seats, great. If you've got your Bible app open, uh, if you've clicked on, on Element Church, you're already right there uh, where we're going to be. And so uh, this is just one of many instances when Jesus is going to use a very practical uh, image or, or uh, example, or uh, sometimes he likes to tell parables, but something to illustrate uh, a spiritual truth, a principle that he wants to teach. And for a group of people in, in rural Palestine in the first century, uh, these kinds of uh, imagery, um, farming and sowing and reaping, are, are their everyday life. And so they kind of meet them right where, Jesus meets them right where they are. And so he begins by telling this story, or this giving this imagery, this picture. In verse 43 it says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. And so just a really practical, simple illustration that Jesus uses to teach the crowd that, hey, listen, you don't go up to a good tree expecting to find bad fruit. You don't go up to a bad tree and expect to find good fruit. That a tree and the fruit it bears will be representative of what kind of tree it is. In the same way, you don't walk up to an orange tree expecting to find apples and vice versa. You don't walk up to a diseased tree expecting to find good, healthy fruit. And so Jesus is just giving this really simple, practical illustration, hey, Whatever kind of tree it is, that's what kind of fruit it bears. Now, obviously, Jesus is about to turn this into a spiritual principle that we're going to look at in a minute. But Jesus isn't the only one in the Bible to use this imagery. Uh, is not the only one who wants to talk about sowing and reaping and the way it works in our lives. Uh, the Apostle Paul, we read out of his letter in 2 Corinthians early when we, earlier when we started the uh, the service together, um, writes in Galatians, so it's a church that he writes to a group of churches, it's a letter he writes to a group of churches uh, in a region called Galatia in the first century, uh, and is probably his earliest letter. So if it is the Apostle Paul's earliest letter, then this makes it one of the, if not the earliest letter in our New Testament, and one of the first teaching Christian teachings that we have preserved at least 
uh, in writing. And so in this writing, he says this in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 7. It's there on the screen for you. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Um, Now, Paul has taken this um, very specifically to let us know that this isn't just a personal, self, private, individualistic matter, but this has bigger implications. For Paul here, he wants to say, don't be deceived, you can't mock God. You can't outsmart the one who created this whole system and how it works. Just like you wouldn't expect to outsmart God and Mother Nature by planting uh, an apple seed and growing an avocado tree, uh, don't think that you can deceive God by sowing one thing into your life and reaping something different. And that's how he applies this principle that you can't trick God. You can't trick him into getting something uh, when you did, maybe something positive when you didn't put something positive in to begin with. Uh, again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this point. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, uh, in the context of this particular verse in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he's writing to a church and saying, hey, um, there are some poor Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering under a famine, and you need to be generous and give money that I can take back there because your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in Jesus, are suffering, so I want you to give to them to help alleviate their suffering. And then he brings out this spiritual principle that whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly, whoever uh, right sows generously, uh, reaps generously. So saying, listen, God understands what you're doing and however you act now it will influence your life later and so this idea of sowing and reaping of planting and harvesting uh, occurs over and over in the bible Uh, but sometimes it doesn't quite work the way we expect it to sometimes when we begin to evaluate the fruit of someone's life or the we could use this metaphorically, the harvest that we see, sometimes we make a wrong assumption about what was sowed. This happened to a guy named Job in the Old Testament. If you grew up in church, if you've been around church for a while or the Bible, you may be very familiar with the story of Job. A man who had everything you could want in life. A man who even the Bible itself calls him a righteous man. That he was more righteous than anyone else around him. More righteous than anyone else uh, of the times. Um, Devoted to God and to serving and worshiping God. Devoted to raising his family up to love and serve God. And he had everything you could want. Land and animals and a great big family and his own personal health. He had all that we could want. And all of it was taken from him. Now it's a long book. It's 42 chapters. uh, And there's a long developed story where we get to see both a picture of Job's character and a picture of God's character and and how that uh, we understand suffering. Um, Job is one of the oldest stories in your Bible. 
Um, if Job were to fall in line in chronological order, it would go in the first half of Genesis. And so uh, this is a very early story um, that meant a lot to people when really asking the question, how do we understand and deal with suffering? What happens when bad things happen to good people? We ask that question a lot today. Well, you can take comfort in knowing that question has been asked for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And so Job is in the midst of suffering. All, his, all of his children have been killed. All of his livestock have been destroyed. Uh, everything he owns is gone. And his health has failed him. Uh, even his own wife has sort of turned on him and said, oh, you're so miserable, why don't you just curse God and die? That's her solution to his problems. And so Job sits down with some of his friends who, in a time of suffering, your friend is supposed to be somebody who comforts you, who encourages you, who does what you need, right? I mean, I get it, friends. Sometimes you got to speak truth. But, but in the time of suffering, when you need a friend, you need a friend to, to sit there and be there with you. And um, Job had a lot of friends and not so many good ones. And actually in Job chapter 4, um, a friend of his named Eliphaz is talking to him and trying to get him to understand what's going on. And he says this, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So if you're sitting there and you have lost everything, right? Not like one thing, right? It's hard enough to lose one family member. That's why we were in Oklahoma this week. My grandmother passed away, right? It's hard enough to lose one, but to lose virtually everyone at the same time to lose all of your possessions to lose everything that you could hold on to to lose your own health and you're sitting there and your friend wants to come up with this pithy statement right like how would you react like your friend in in his high and mighty state sticks up his nose and says well you know i've observed some things about life and what i've observed is when people sow trouble that's what they get when people sow trouble and iniquity and a lot of bad things go in, bad things start to come out. That was his accusation of Job. He was trying to let Job know, surely because you're suffering like this, it's probably because you put a lot of bad stuff in to begin with. Now that you're reaping all these terrible circumstances, it's obviously because you sowed a bunch of terrible things in your life. But as we read the book of Job, we find that to actually be the total opposite of the truth. That, in fact, Job was a righteous man, but that God wanted to let him know and let him understand that in the end, all that matters is having the Lord. Just like we sang about today, just like I read out of 2 Corinthians where Paul said, your grace is sufficient for me, so I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses because Jesus, your grace is all I need. What Job came to the place is to understand that it was God who was in control and that's all that mattered. And that he could, despite losing everything, still trust God. In Job chapter 42, Job actually says these words, my, eyes, uh, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. I had heard that you were good, but now I know it. I'd heard the stories of your goodness, but now that I have nothing left, all I have is you, now I know you really are good. 
And so sometimes this idea of sowing and reaping doesn't always become so clear. It's not always as simple as we would like for it to be. But here's how Jesus applies this principle. So I did that whole full circle to come back to Luke chapter 6. So maybe you kept your finger in your Bible because we're, we're right back there again. So we did this whole circle to talk about the, the idea that it doesn't always appear uh, as though we would like. And here's how Jesus applies this principle. For no good tree bears bad fruit, we'll read this again, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. We read that. Now let's pick it up where we stopped off in verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks." Now here's what's interesting. Usually when we talk about sowing and reaping, we're like, hey, you should do a bunch of good stuff so that a bunch of good stuff will happen to you. As though God operates on a karma system. Right? Do some good things, the universe will eventually pay you back. And that's what we would normally say, but in church you know, you're supposed to say God will pay you back, right? Like that's how we think and sometimes approach this idea. But Jesus applies it a little differently. And rather than saying, do a bunch of good stuff so that bad stuff doesn't happen to you, do a bunch of good stuff so that good stuff will happen to you. As we learned from Job's story, that doesn't always work. But what Jesus does say is, just as you can know a tree by its fruit, he says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. See, it's easy to look at someone's bank account or the car they drive and think you know about who they are as a person. As though you can make a judgment about their character because of what you see on the outside. Sometimes this idea of sowing and reaping isn't always as plain or clear, as, as easy as we would like for it to be. But what Jesus says is, the, sowing, the principle of sowing and reaping is, is true. It always has been. But I tell you, we're going to look deeper. We're going to, to look at this and approach this and examine ourselves in a different way because it's out of the abundance of what's in your heart that your mouth will speak. You want a, a character test to find out whether you're a, quote, good tree or bad tree? Don't look at how much property you own and your bank account and your cars and your children and your health. Look at what comes out of your mouth. Because that'll tell you what kind of heart you have. That will be the test. That's the fruit of what kind of heart is inside of you, what kind of tree you really are. That's how Jesus applies this principle of sowing and reaping. In the book of Proverbs, we get it said this way. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the, the version I'm reading out of, it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Maybe you've got the New International Version or something like that that says, guard your heart. Why should we guard our heart? Why should we be vigilant about protecting our heart? Because from it flows the springs of life. 
Guard your heart because it's from your heart that's where life begins to show itself. Or if there is no life, that's where death begins to show itself. I want to look at one final scripture together with you this morning, and it comes out of Psalm 51. Now, what was it, three weeks ago, Jay preached the message, opened us up uh, to this series of heart matters. And, and he referenced, I don't remember if you read from Psalm 51, but you referenced it, I know, in your message. And, and so I want to revisit this. And what we're going to do is we'll start with uh, the first six verses. Now, um, just to give you a little bit of context really quickly, um, this is King David, the, the king of Israel, which at this time was the most powerful nation in the world. Uh, a, a man who, uh, uh, Jay talked a lot about Saul, King Saul, who was the first ever king of Israel, and King David, who took his place. And in, in his first message, talking about the heart, compared the two, that King Saul had all the outward appearances that you would want in a leader. The one thing he was lacking was a heart that wanted to honor and serve God. David, however, uh, had none of what you would like to see in a leader. Even his own father didn't think he had what it took to be a leader. Yet he had the one thing and the only thing that mattered. And as the Bible says, that he, had a, a heart, a, he, that he was a man after God's own heart. That, that David's heart was intimately connected to and in pursuit of God's heart. And that's what made him such a great leader. That didn't make him a perfect person. It made him a great leader and a great example. But like every man in the Bible, they have a lot of good qualities and a lot of bad ones. And David had some bad qualities too, and he made some terrible mistakes and, and committed some terrible sins, even by our own 21st century standards, made some terrible mistakes and committed some terrible sins. And this is a prayer, sort of a song, a response to post-committing the sin and post-getting caught. And, and this is what begins to happen. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we're, gonna, we're about to read verse 6, but, but up until these first five, first five verses, I mean, really David is just internally focused on his own brokenness, on his own depravity, like acknowledging that, that, that he has made some great mistakes, that he is acknowledging his failures. That he's acknowledging that not only has he failed, but that he's directly failed God and God's standards in his life. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's a confession that, that uh, you know, it wasn't that I'm a really good person. I just made a mistake. It's a through and through, I'm broken. I've been broken since birth. This is not about making one misstep. This is about being broken and off track entirely. And then verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
So uh, uh, David has just made a transition here from an external focus to an internal focus. From looking on the outside at all that has gone wrong and all that he has done wrong to now focusing on the inside and what it is that God is trying to do. And then in what is probably a very famous verse out of Psalm 51, if you jump down to verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, what I find interesting is what David doesn't say is, God, help me to do better. God, help me not to make that mistake again. God, help me not to do that again. Rather, his focus is turned on, on outwardly. Everything has gone wrong. I am totally broken and always have been. And then his focus is not help me do better. His focus has shifted to give me a clean heart. In verse 6 that we read there, you, talking to God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What did he not say? He didn't say, God, you delight when I don't make mistakes. God, you delight when all my activities and my actions are perfect. He says, God, you delight in truth in the inward being. And then rather than saying, help me do better, he says, give me a clean heart. Because David understand it's from the heart flows out those springs of life. It's from the heart that flow out those words. David says, my actions are a fruit of a problem in my heart. Everything about our culture pushes back against this idea. Right? We're good people. We just make mistakes. That's, that's what we want to believe. I'll do better. I'll get it right eventually. I'll start doing this. I'll stop doing this. You know, I, I'm working on it. God knows my intentions. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. It's not that you're a good person who makes mistakes. You're a broken person. And those mistakes are fruit that flow out of something wrong in your heart jesus would say yes the principle of sowing and reaping is true don't think that someone's bank account or relationship status or how their children behave are somehow indication of what they've sowed the principle works in a much deeper much more inward level David, recognizing his terrible sins, his terrible mistakes, says, God, I am broken through and through. I always have been. Give me a clean heart. That's why we've spent the last three or four weeks in this series talking about what the heart is and why it matters so much. Most of the time when we want to make a change in life, when we know something needs to change, most of the time, our first gut reaction is, what skills and abilities do I need to improve upon? What, what new things do I need to do in order to, to bring about that change? And a lot of what Jay talked about in week one was about your performance and your skills and ability are not what matters. 
What matters is the condition of your heart. Two weeks ago, we took a new approach. We talked about uh, Jesus and his interaction with a lot of the religious elite people of his day. And what we came to discover through Jesus' own words is that your, even your religious activities are not really what matter. What matters is the condition of your heart. To the most religious people that the first century had ever known, who would amaze us today with their religious deeds, to them, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. In Matthew 23, if you remember, you are beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You have all the religious activities on the outside, but inwardly, there's just death. Last week, we talked about Mary's response on Mother's Day to the news about Jesus and His birth and what took place when the angels came and gave their announcement. And while everyone else was trying to cognitively wrap their minds around the information, she allowed the information to wrap itself around her heart. While everyone else was trying to figure it out mentally, she was allowing the information, the truth, to transform her heart. It is so easy for you and for me to focus on our outward activities, to focus on our outward actions, to focus on our skills and our talents, on our spiritual to-do list, and, and into gathering and wrapping our minds around all the correct information, having all the dots connected in our mind. But what Jesus would say is, why don't you quit worrying about those things? All the things that everyone else sees and worry about what it is that God can see. Worry about what's inside because it's what's inside that will really determine the fruit that eventually comes out in your life. You can fake it for a while. Anyone can fake good fruit and put on, you can dress nice, you can be at church every Sunday, your lawn can be perfectly mowed, you can be a really nice guy or gal. But eventually what's inside begins to well up out of you. And the Bible would teach us over and over and over. We've seen it through Job. We've seen it through David. We've seen it through Saul. We've seen it through Paul. We've seen it through Jesus. What matters most is what's on the inside. What matters most is the condition of your heart. And as we conclude this series together, our challenge, our encouragement to you, and even turning right back on to myself, is quit worrying about what everyone else can see. And start worrying about what only God can see. Will you pray with me? Lord, I come to you this morning. Lord, thank you for the truth that you speak into our lives. The ways in which you move. The ways in which you search out those places of our heart that maybe we didn't even know were there ourselves. Lord, we ask You to do what only You can do. And that's to see our hearts, to know our hearts, and to transform our hearts. Do something powerful in our lives this morning. I want to invite you to keep your eyes closed for just a minute. I know everyone's different, and everyone in this room comes from a different place, a different story. 
different experiences. And I don't know what your prayer life looks like. If it's um, something that happens occasionally, maybe uh, once or twice a week, you uh, close your eyes, you bow your head while someone prays for a meal and, and that's the extent of it. Or maybe you pray every day. Maybe you recite the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you write in a, a journal and you journal out and write out your prayers. But I think we all are guilty, and I include myself in this. At times we are, are focused on and we pray about a lot of external things. We pray about external circumstances and problems. Uh, we pray about our external activities and actions. We ask God to forgive us when we do something wrong and we ask him to give us the help and the strength to not do it again. But what David did was he prayed for his own heart. He asked God to search his heart, to cleanse his heart. And even in the midst of his own grief over his own sin, recognized that it was more about his heart than his outward activities. What I want to do is I want to encourage you right where you are, right where you sit, no matter how long it's been since you've prayed last, would you just ask God to do something in your heart? Lord, cleanse my heart. Lord, search me and know me. Know my heart. Transform my heart. Give me a new heart. Maybe you feel right now as you're sitting in there that you just have a heart of stone. It's just hard to pray. It's hard to trust. It's hard to know. And maybe you just ask God, would you soften my heart to be more sensitive to what it is that you want to do in my life? What I'm going to do is, is uh, I'm going to pray. Jay is going to lead us, but he's going to give you just a few minutes before we begin singing to really reflect and to pray for your heart. If you've ever wondered like what kind of prayers God answers, I'll tell you this. This is a prayer he answers every time. Lord, thank you for who you are, for the opportunity to be here to celebrate your goodness, your grace, your mercy. There are so many things tucked inside of our hearts that may be hard to confront, it may be hard to admit, it may be hard to face, but Lord, would you do something powerful in all of our hearts? Something that would begin to work its way out and that we would be changed and transformed from the inside out. Lord, do what only you can do in this moment.